Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode, I speak with Diego Perez, who writes under the pen name Young Pueblo, which means young people. He chose the pen name Young Pueblo as a commentary on where we are right now as a human species, holding a vision of what's possible for us as we move from being such a young people to evolve and mature in the future. Diego Perez is a meditator and a writer. By some people, he's called a modern sage, a guiding light. I think of Diego as a warm space. That's what I think of in my mind. I've had the chance to hang out with Diego on a couple of occasions. He's such a special young person. He's the author of the books Inward, Clarity and Connection, there's an audiobook of Clarity and Connection Through Sounds True. And he's also the author of a new book, which is what we'll be talking about today. It's called Lighter. Let go of the past, connect with the present, expand the future. Here's my conversation with the very warm space of Diego Perez. And with that, let me uh, bring forward this warm space of a friend, Diego Perez. Diego, hi. Hey, Tammy. It's so good hey. to see you. It's been a little yeah, while. Yeah, it has. How you doing, friend? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm happy we get a, a chance to speak right now. To help our listeners get a chance to know a little bit about you, can we start with the fact that you were born in Ecuador and mm -hmm. how you came here to the United States and the journey that you went on to commit yourself to healing. Sure. So I was born in Ecuador in the city Guayaquil that's on the coast. And I lived there with my family until I was about four years old. And my mother and father decided that um, Ecuador was not the best place for us, that there would be more opportunity if we took the big risk of going to the United States. So we ended up moving in 1982 to uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And it was just my mom, my dad, myself, and my brother. And when we got here, um, 
it was just such a radical change from what life was like. Cause you know, we left basically the, the vast, like 95% of our family um, in Ecuador and came to the very atomized United States. And um, what we found was a lot of struggle. So my mom, she ended up working, um, cleaning houses. My dad worked uh, at a supermarket and a lot of my memories from childhood and I think a lot of my personal trauma was seeing the struggle that they um, experienced just trying to keep our family afloat. So there was the constant battle of um, them trying to figure out how to pay rent every month and figuring out you know, how to get us groceries. And um, it was just a, a constant thing that lasted for, I think about a decade and a half, um, where we were really stuck in a poverty trap. And I think what you know, experiencing that, seeing that, um, it really embedded a lot of, uh, sadness and anxiety inside of me. And it created a sort of scarcity mindset, this fearful scarcity mindset that as I got older and I had no way of processing these emotions, um, they just slowly became very unhealthy habits. And when I got to college, um, I was even further removed from my home and was just in a totally new space. And um, I think those, those, those habits just picked up. And what it ended up looking like was that I was just constantly trying to run away from myself by um, seeking alcohol, seeking marijuana, partying as much as I can, doing a lot of different drugs, and um, just basically pushing my body to the edge like week after week. And it culminated with me um, you know, hitting the rock bottom moment about a year after I graduated from college, where I just did way too many drugs one night. And my body was just utterly exhausted. And um, I felt like my heart was going to explode. And, um, you know, basically, it was just like on the ground for two hours, um, feeling like I was having a heart attack. And what, um, what dawned on me in that moment was that what got me there was that I had been lying to myself. Like I had been lying to myself. I didn't want to admit that, that I didn't feel good, that something was not right inside. And I realized in that moment, I was like, if, if lying to myself got me here, then what could pull me out is telling myself the truth. And that's, that's when I really started trying to find methods to make my mind lighter. And the discovery of meditation, it, it seems like in your life, and I know for some people, when they find their path, mm -hmm. it's a big deal. It's a really big deal, a kind of homecoming. And it seems like that was the case for you. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, it definitely felt like a really big deal. Um, it um, So about a year after that rock bottom moment, like I um, stopped doing the hard drugs, started focusing on just being really honest with myself about whatever I was feeling, challenging myself to just feel a discomfort. And this is before, you know, I wasn't like a meditating. I was just like allowing myself to sit with the sadness, with the anxiety, with whatever was coming up. Um, but a year later in the summer of 2012, um, I did my first silent 10 day Vipassana course in the Goenka tradition. And um, that really just like shook me wide open. It just like, um, it was by far the hardest thing I had ever done. And, um, and I really struggled in that first course. Um, but when it was over, I realized that um, my mind felt significantly lighter. And I kept going back, you know, I kept doing more courses. And I've been practicing in this um, method and this technique for about 10 years now. And 
it just felt like uh it does it felt it feels like a homecoming and it felt like this is really what i had been looking for my whole life that i um this method in particular works really well with my conditioning and um and it just continues to give me these results that kind of wow me yeah you talk about this process as a type of unbinding that's mm -hmm. the word you use i think it's a really interesting word and i wonder if you can share more about that the healing process as unbinding from the types of patterning and knots that are in us from our youth yeah it definitely feels like that it feels like um the mind is like so heavily conditioned and you use the word knotted up like it literally feels like there are just a limited set of uh reactions that my mind personally had when it dealt with difficult situations and it was either like get really anxious about it, get really sad about it, and keep bouncing between the two. And um, when I started meditating, I like, you know, obviously still feel sadness and anxiety, but the intensity started decreasing. And not only did the intensity decrease, but I felt like my mind had more space. And that was what really kind of shocked me was that, um, you know, I would be able to see my reaction or what I wanted to react, how I wanted to react, um without immediately falling into it and i was like okay i was like this is what i would normally do in this situation this is what i've done for years but actually now i have other opportunities to you know maybe i could choose to just behave in a totally different way that actually will benefit me better and um i think for a lot of us like healing is actually just the unbinding of these old patterns so that we can breathe so that we can feel a little freer so that we can see more instead of just repeat the past over and over again you write, Diego, in Lighter about moving beyond a survival mindset as part mm -hmm. of the healing process. And I want to talk about that because you mentioned how the poverty of your family was so formative in terms mm -hmm. of there being this environment of stress and anxiety. And I think a lot of us, even if uh, we didn't grow up in a lot of economic pressure mm -hmm. still notice that we're very invested in survival concerns like come on of course you right. know it could be all economic survival survival of our human form our health survival mm -hmm. you know so tell me more about this notion of moving beyond a survival mindset in, in your own life how that has worked for you i think it's been interesting because i've been sort of understanding this like um you know, survival and ego go hand in hand, like that's our survival mechanism, you know, and it makes sense, like evolutionarily, like we're, we're trying to figure out how to get from here to tomorrow. So we need to have that sort of short term thinking that defensive thinking um, that comes from really our, the coalescing of ego. And what I've been realizing is that living in that way can definitely get you through hard times, but it does just, it just didn't give me any access to happiness. It didn't help me um feel calm or feel any peace and um what i've been realizing through meditating is that as opposed to living from a place of ego i need to do my best to live from a place of compassion to live from a place of being compassionate towards myself and being compassionate towards others and i've been seeing now that like sort of reframing life through that lens as opposed to just like me 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 you know it's more so let me do my best to take care of myself but at the same time like how can i uh, bring harmony to the situations that i'm a part of and i think it's taking a it's taken a long time for me to sort of 
basically break that conditioning of survival mode because that's that's just what I needed at that time in childhood to get me through it. Um, but as an adult and as I've been meditating, it just it doesn't help and doesn't support my happiness. So it um, feels way more aligned to live from a place of compassion. Can you give me an example, Diego, of when a survival mindset it's on you. It's on you right in the moment. It's on you and what you do on the spot. Um, I think a lot of it is like, uh, like even simple moments, you know, like seeing a friend, um, do something really well or someone else in the writing world. Um, and then the first thing that comes up is like jealousy, you know, like I think of that as survival, but then it's like, that's, that will be the first immediate reaction. And then I pause and I ask myself, I'm like, wait, I'm like, am I actually jealous? Like, no, you know, like I'm actually not missing anything out. I'm actually happy for them. And being able to like reframe that and not just repeat what, how I would have reacted in the past, but actually sort of align myself with how I want to show up in the present and in the future. It, it takes that moment. It takes that slowing down. And I think um, a lot of our sort of first reactions are survival mode reactions. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned radical honesty as something mm -hmm. that you committed to uh, early in your healing process. Tell us more about how you use that. Yeah, radical honesty feels, um, I mean, it's a term that's been around for a long time and people define it in different ways. Um, but I like to think of it as the truth that you try to maintain between you and yourself. And I didn't have that, you know, like I was constantly lying to myself. I was constantly trying to just run away from my emotions to just try to hide from any discomfort that I was feeling. And when I um, saw how detrimental that was to my livelihood, I wanted to just do the opposite. And the opposite to me looked like, you know, tell myself the truth. Like if you don't feel good, accept the fact that you don't feel good. If you're feeling anxiety right now, accept it, embrace it, let it be there. And, um, and radical honesty wasn't just like a mental component, but it was like a challenge to myself of not just telling myself the truth, but let me actually sit here. So like that first year, you know, after I stopped doing hard drugs, before I started meditating, I would literally just like challenge myself to feel the anxiety as it comes up without immediately trying to roll up another joint, without immediately trying to just like extrovert myself in some manner. And I would just sit in my room and sit on my bed and just feel it, like literally feel what it was like in my body and my mind. And um, that actually created a lot of, um, like it broke a lot of illusions. Like it didn't feel all consuming. It didn't feel like the end of the world. And I started realizing, I was like, oh, it's like, I'm actually, I'm okay. Like this sucks, but I'm okay. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the radical honesty was combined with a type of acceptance, as you're totally. describing. Yeah. And you also write about something you call strong determination. Now you know all and, about that. <laughs> well, you know, it's something that I think is often not emphasized mm -hmm. that much on the healing journey. And yet you're very clear about it. You say it will take real effort to break your old ways. And then you go on, people who heal themselves are lions. I loved that. Heroes with exceptional bravery. I say this not to discourage you, but to make it clear that this journey is not fast, not mm -hmm. easy. And, you know, something that's very uh, sober in that, very sober. Yeah, I think it's, um, 
I think of a lot of healing is about repetition. If you know, we we often don't take into account that the way that our mind, like why our mind exists the way it does right now, is because we've repeated the same reactions countless times since we were born. Like over and over again, we're building up this conditioning that has been very limiting for us, that hasn't given given us a lot of freedom. So to try to strike a new path and build a new life, you're going to have to repeat good habits over and over again and put in that effort that will basically allow you to embrace your own evolution. And, and it takes time. It's not, it's not like a one minute meditation or a five minute solution or something that, you know, it's, there's no easy way out. It takes a lot of time to, to build uh, the qualities up that your mind really needs present moment awareness, equanimity, compassion, like they need to be cultivated. And um, it's, it's not easy, but it's incredibly beneficial. And often you'll see results right away, but the greater results are over a long period of time. It sounds like these same qualities that have been important, critical in your healing journey are also true in terms of you being a writer, this mm -hmm. strong determination that it uh, has taken for you to sit down and uh, do as much writing as you have. And I, I wonder if you can talk about that and how your commitment to meditation has helped you develop the strong determination that has then flowed into your writing? Um, that's a great question. I, you know, and it's funny because they're, they're so intrinsically tied together because I just, I never knew that I wanted to be a writer. I never had that intention, never saw that life path even being a possibility. Um, and I never really wrote creatively as a child or as a young adult. Um, but it wasn't until I started meditating that um, the creativity started bubbling up. And I still look back on that and, and I'm quite surprised that I just, I never saw this coming. And what I attribute it to is that I think for a lot of us, um, we accept the goals that society or our parents have embedded in us. And a lot of that happens rather unconsciously. So like I thought, because, you know, I grew up really poor, my best bet was to go into finance or go into investment banking. And that's kind of what I was maneuvering myself towards. But then all of the um, difficulty that I was going through on the inside, all this unaddressed trauma, all this old sort of um, knotted up patterns that I had was oblivious to, they were, they were blocking me from doing that. But when I started addressing all of what was happening inside of me, this like new aspiration came up and I was quite shocked by it. And I think um, meditating has not only helped me see that I actually had a deeper aspiration um, to be a writer and it's helped me, you know, connect with this beautiful part of my life, but it's, it's helped me accept the long journey. It's helped me sort of um, just realize that I'm not going to be good at it right away. You know, like that I'm going to have, it's going to take time for me to develop my voice as a writer. Cause I spent all of 20, I would say 2014, to 2017 developing my voice as a writer and just figuring out like what topics I want to write about how do I want to write about it you know is poetry a good format for me let me develop my ability to write essays all of this took a lot of time to cultivate now you're an intensive meditator Diego mm -hmm. I think most people would describe uh, how you approach meditation as being warrior-like or extremely intense how, how would you describe it and give our listeners a sense of what your practice is like both retreat practice and daily practice 
Sure. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I like to use the word serious meditator. Serious um, is good. Just because it's like, uh, it's a, it's a big part of my life. And I, um, all the people like, uh, myself, my wife, and, um, all of our friends who meditate seriously in this tradition and another tradition, you know, there's a lot of people who meditate a lot. Um, they're all like, uh, pretty calm people. And, but there's this part about them that they're, they're very interested in learning and they love the wisdom that you can access when you observe the body and the mind. And so I practice two hours a day. I practice an hour in the first half of the day, an hour in the second half of the day. So, you know, I'll meditate for an hour sometime after I wake up or after doing a few hours of work. And then I'll um, meditate again sometime after dinner. And I also go to retreats a few times a year. And uh, one of those times will be a longer course of 45 days or 30 days. And um, I, yeah, I, I sort of design my life in a way where um, before I do anything else, when a year, a new year opens up, I pick out like, when am I going to do my long course? You know, where am I going to do it? And, um, and then after that comes all the work and, you know, if I have a new book launch or if I'm writing a book. Um, so I really try to hold meditation as the centerpiece of my life, because I think without it, life would just be so much harder. Like I've seen the benefits of going to these long courses of meditating daily consistently now for, I think almost uh, seven years now. And it's just, it's given me so much that, you know, I think about it as why would I not invest in myself? Why would I not invest in the thing that helps me, you know, be a good husband, to be a good son, to like um, helps me, you know, do a good job with my work and um, helps me just keep taking these small steps forward on the path of liberation. So it feels pretty critical to design my life in a way where I have time to meditate. You're very clear and lighter that your first commitment is to personal healing and meditation. And that's secondarily to that, you're a writer. And mm. that order seemed important to me. And I wonder if you can talk about that, why it's important to you to have that order in your life. Oh, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, it feels important. I think a lot of times people think that I um, that I meditate to write better and to, or to write, but that feels sort of like a, an unforeseen externality. You know, it's just like an unforeseen outcome. And, um, but I meditate to like, first, like I went into meditation to like, like I needed help, you know, <laughs> I, I needed to really um, start fresh and, and just do something about all this tension in my mind. And over time, so like I went into meditation for healing, but over time, as I uh, better understood the Buddhist teaching, better understood why this meditation worked. I was introduced to the path of liberation. So to me, meditating is really about continuing my healing, taking steps forward on the path of liberation and liberation being, um, you know, the, the potential for the freedom of all suffering, right? To just um, to cut that cord of craving so that suffering doesn't continue in my mind. And, and that's totally a long, long journey, but taking steps forward towards that feels um, like a very important life goal to me. And then after that comes, you know, the writing and, and all the other things that I do. Um, and I think formatting and seeing my life in that manner has been pretty helpful. It's helped me um, just stay focused with what's important. 
And through your commitment to meditation, this intuition about writing emerged for you. And, and you write about how the meditative path introduced a certain amount of clarity in your life and then creativity, and then you were able to attune to your intuition. How does your intuition appear to you, Diego? I mean, do you have hear voices? Do you know, do you see no, no. images? <laughs> like what happens? Um, it, it often appears as a very calm knowing. Um, it appears, it feels very bodily to me. Like it feels almost like a, I have a little compass inside me that's pointing me in a direction. And it's very different from the like the wildness and sporadicness of craving, right? It doesn't feel mental where the mind's like, oh, I want ice cream. Oh, I want, you know, I want more of this, more of that. Um, oftentimes I feel like my intuition is pointing me in a direction that is challenging. That's like, it's asking me to grow. It's asking me to just step outside of my comfort zone. Um, and I've seen this repeatedly over, you know, over the last uh, decade or so where my intuition was very adamant that, you know, that I do start writing. And even though I didn't listen to it right away, I didn't listen to it for about a year or so before I really started. Um, it was, it's, this persistence was there. It was like, you know, you should, you should try. And um, similarly, when my wife and I moved from Boston to New York City, uh, it felt clear in me. It was like, oh, like, I think we should move to New York City now. And she felt the same thing too. Um, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't like an intellectual thing. It was more like my body wanted me to move in a particular direction. Tell me more about that when you say that, like a body compass. What are the sensations? What do you feel? How oh, do you yeah. know? So it doesn't feel agitated, right? So like cravings feel rather agitated um, in the mind and it feels more like uh, like it's emerging from the gut and it feels peaceful. It feels like uh, like gentle waves just sort of hitting at a particular note over and over again. And, um, and it's what, what I find great about it is that even if I'm not ready to listen to it in that moment, like it'll appear, you know, if it's like a few, like it'll take months or whatnot for me to actually listen to it. It'll just remind me that, that this is something I should do. Now, Diego, there are a lot of different approaches to meditation. Will you share with us, what are you actually doing as you're sitting <laughs> for an hour in the first half and the second half of the day? What are you doing? Sure. So what I'm doing is um, observing uh, whatever's arising and passing away in the body uh, within the framework of the, of the body. So but with particular attention to um, impermanence, like that's probably one of the most immediate things that appears when you're observing the body and the mind and um, what you feel, you know, like literally, literally feeling is um, when a, when a meditator sort of elevates their awareness um, after, you know, meditating for years, they're just much more able to feel the different sensations in the body. They can feel like the, the intricacies of any pains or toughness, or they can feel sort of the vibrate, the undercurrent of vibrations that are happening, you know, in your arms or legs or whatnot. So it's really just being in touch with those sensations and being able to observe them without reacting to them. What happens when you load the world's most advanced AI with thousands of humanity's greatest texts, and then you ask it the biggest questions that live in our hearts? You get the new book, What Makes Us Human, 
using sources as old as the Bible to the works of modern-day poets and philosophers. The AI behind What Makes Us Human drew from billions of words to answer some of our deepest questions, like why are we here and what happens when we die? What Makes Us Human will inspire a new understanding of what makes us, us. You can find What Makes Us Human at bookstores, online, and at soundstrue.com. You write that change, impermanence, has been your greatest teacher. Mm -hmm. What have you learned? How has it changed you to spend so much time observing change happening at the level of sensation? I mean, change has just been, it's, it's hard to even encapsulate like how much um, I've learned from um, not just understanding impermanence intellectually, but being able to experience impermanence in the body. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a wisdom that really opens the door to the greater wisdoms to the understandings of uh of dissatisfaction of stress of of suffering and it also opens the door to understanding that this identity that i've been existing in is not fully substantial that it also has these undercurrents of impermanence that that um reveal that it's not fundamentally everything that i thought it was <clears throat> so I think understanding and really digging deeper into impermanence has helped me um, not just the basics of like, you know, being able to weather storms better, the understanding that, okay, this difficult moment, this is also something that's impermanent and may last for a while, but it also has this, um, it's also sort of dominated by this law of change as well. And similarly, I think and probably the most helpful part has been inspiring me to to be present with the people that I love because these moments that we shared together I mean I was just with my parents yesterday in Boston and um that fragility of life is very clear it's like we're not we're not always going to be able to be together so let me be with you uh, you know if I'm next to you let me really pay attention to you and um and to be able to be open about you know the love that we have for each other and and um I think change itself has really, it's been a blessing learning that we often struggle with change because we're afraid that it will take things away. But I'm actually grateful to change because change has given me the opportunity to have my parents. You know, like we, you and I, we wouldn't exist if it weren't for this moving change that really pushes the universe forward if everything in the universe were static none of us would exist because things move because things change we can exist and um i think we have this beautiful opportunity for growth because change is the undercurrent of reality change does also take things away mm -hmm. yeah and, that, and that's that's what i'm really saying so we often think of change as in that connotation that it takes things away so we fear it but lately I've been thinking that that's true, but it's also true that I would have nothing if it weren't for change. I know you've become more expressive. You write about it in Lighter. 
in your love of other people and with with your family. It sounds like that's something that is happening with your parents and that this knowing of impermanence has encouraged you to come forward more. And uh, you write about hugging your father and how mm -hmm. that changed your relationship. I, I wonder if you can share more because I think that's something people can really relate to. Yeah, you know, um, if that felt important to add into the book because it... Um, I think for a lot of people, um, father figures aren't um, aren't yet as sort of emotionally in tune or emotionally open as they were before, um, or as they can be now, has because a lot of people are changing now and becoming much more expressive. And it was a similar thing for my father. He um, showed his love to us by how hard he worked for us, by how hard he kept our family afloat, and. Um, and I was always grateful to him. Like I never doubted the love that he had for me, but it was a very silent love. It was, um, it wasn't very sort of expressive. And I started realizing that um, early on in my own healing journey, that, that the relationship between him and I was a bit stuck. You know, we were sort of going through the same moves um, a few years, you know, over a few year period where you know, we we laugh together, we talk about politics and talk about whatever needed to be taken care of, but we didn't share our love for each other. And I realized I was like, well, let me see what would happen if I change, if I like change the way I, I interact with him. And I, re I remember a day where, you know, he was coming home from work and I decided to just give him a really big hug. And, and I think I really caught him off guard. Um, and over time, as I continued, you know, just like telling him that I love him and telling him that, you know, I really um, appreciate him. I think his sort of me demonstrating that vulnerability welcomed his vulnerability. And he's really changed over time. Like he, I mean, I was just with him yesterday and he's, he's just very open about how much he loves us all. And, um, and I think it's been, it's been wonderful to, to meet this new side of him that was always in there, but wasn't, didn't feel like he had the space, you know, to let it out. What would you say to someone who's listening, who feels inspired to perhaps share more of their vulnerability with someone, but it's a little kind of in between, if you will. Yeah. Kind of, I, kind of want to <clears throat> kind of a little, kind of a little nervous about it. Awkward for sure. I think, um, especially if you're on your own healing journey, you'll be surprised how much can change with others as well. It's not just like, they don't also need to be actively healing themselves. It's just uh, um, similar emotions will create doors where they can come through as well. So let's say like, if you are presenting your vulnerability with another person, that gives them the opportunity to receive it and to come forth with vulnerability as well. They may not always come forth with vulnerability, but it gives them a chance. So I think realize that if you're changing your actions, um, it can actually really change the dynamic of a relationship. Um, so it's it's worth a shot, I think, and, and you'll be surprised by the results. Believe it or not, Diego, I want to talk more about change and about your experience yeah. of change as a meditator specifically, because I think a lot of people, you know, everything has a season, like we all get it, you know, let things go. Like, I think mm -hmm, at a certain mm -hmm. level, we get it. But I also know because, uh, and this is something you and I've talked about before, mm -hmm. I, I've done the 
serious retreats in the Vipassana style that you're practicing, and that was part of my early introduction to meditation, mm -hmm. that there's a way that you're putting under a magnifying glass what's happening in your human experience such that you're noting change at a very subtle level. And I want to hear more about what that's like for you. Sure. If you will, a kind of the dissolution or whatever your version of that might be. Yeah, I think um, something that I like to kind of go back to that kind of, that really opened my eyes as to how I viewed myself was during the longer courses, there are these sort of re repeated moments where you can become so aware, like, you know, raise your ability, um, the awareness of your body, that quality of awareness to the point where your body, um, it just feels like it's totally made up of almost like an electric current, just vibrations, like everything is just vibrating in the body. And there's no solidity anywhere, like everything is just moving and changing. And in those moments, it becomes pristinely clear that what I thought was me, what I thought was I, this concept of self that I carried throughout my whole life, it's not ultimately real. So even though like Diego and Tammy are having a conversation right now, um, it's, it's true. You and I are having a conversation. We're not lying about that. But also what's also true, a, a simultaneous truth, is that at the ultimate level, um, there isn't any anything fundamentally here. It's just rapid changes of mental and physical phenomena that are coming together at incredible speeds. And it creates the illusion of a sense of self. And I think um, being able to literally feel that in the body, feel this, uh, these rapid changes of, um, of, I guess, you know, like sensations, energy, just moving so incredibly rapidly that um, you know that they're just, it's just impermanence happening at incredible speeds. You talk about us as a river, a river mm -hmm. of life. Uh, tell me more about this metaphor of the river. I enjoy this metaphor a lot because it gives us a lot of freedom. You know, I, I remember growing up as a child and hearing so many people say, I'll never change. And they're, they're proud of that. But then the more that I understood nature, <clears throat> everything in nature is changing. And there's this flow, this forward flow. And if we're existing in this sort of river of reality that's flowing forward, to try to fight against it um, would only cause suffering, like greater suffering. So in terms of identity, I've been realizing that as I um, continue taking steps forward, like who I am, um it's just changing it's changing all the time even my wife and i when we go to these 45 day courses we know that at the end of those 45 days of meditating our interests are going to be different you know we're not going to like go back to wanting the same things that we wanted before the course started and it's almost like we get to <clears throat> we get to meet each other again because we're allowing um what we like what we dislike what we want to spend time doing it all just um, evolves as our conditioning decreases and um, as we keep healing ourselves. There's a lot of excitement and potential and creativity in the unknown, but I also think sometimes it can be uncomfortable. 
I, I wonder what you think about that. If that's your experience at times, like, whoa, so everything's so unknown. I feel so uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's that's like it's totally true. It's very uncomfortable not knowing what's going to happen next. Um, or not barely really knowing what's happening. I mean, you know, look how much your life has changed, Diego, in the last, you know, seven years. I mean, whoa. Yeah, I mean, there's a constant wow factor. I think um, that's something that my wife and I talk a lot about, too. It's just like, we don't know what's going to happen next. We know what's gotten us here now. And I think what keeps me um, a little more relaxed about not knowing what's going to happen next is that um, like, I really believe in the law of karma. Like I really believe in, in cause and effect. So I try to, to not just walk gently, but I try to, you know, be a good son, help my, my, my mother and father, help my friends try to give back to others. So using my present moment as a way to do good things, I think ensures a lighter future to, to a certain degree. Like there may totally be things that are just out of my control, really difficult moments. But I really do believe that if I do good deeds, then in some way or another, you know, it'll make the future a little more harmonious. Part of what makes your new book lighter, so powerful in my experience of engaging with the book, is how in the last third, you devote yourself to sharing, in your view, what's possible for all of us in terms of the world as we've committed to our own personal healing. You refer to mm -hmm. us as the healing generation. And I was like, wow, I've never heard anyone talk about it that way. And as more and more people are committed to their own healing, that it brings a new dimension to social change. And I really wanna talk with you about this, Diego. T tell me how you see this. Um, I'm really glad that you're bringing this up, Tammy, because it's. I feel like, that was the original motivation for me to even start writing was the moment when I start, started really taking writing seriously. I was in the middle of um, just like the activist world. Um, I had been doing a lot of organizing and um, the last group that I worked with was called um, Youth Against Mass Incarceration. And I was very you know, aware that people coming together around a common cause can be really powerful. Um, but I also knew that meditating was like introducing me to this sort of internal dynamic of liberation that felt equally important, that felt like doing my own healing work um, was really just illuminating my life from the inside out. And I've been realizing that as people take their healing seriously, and especially in this moment of time where it feels historically unprecedented that there are just millions of people in the world who are actively meditating, millions of people in the world who are doing different forms of therapy, seeing therapists who are trying to engage with um, their minds in a different way so that they can come out as better versions of themselves. And we just live in this beautiful time where they're we have access to, you know, modalities from the East, things from the West, indigenous modalities. There's just so much out there that can actually help us heal ourselves. And that feels very different from, I would say, even like 20 years ago, 100 years ago. <clears throat> the only time that I can really think of is, um, you know, the time of the Buddha. But even then, most of that was sort of isolated to Northern India, um, where there were just, you know, there were tons and tons of people meditating at that time. But now it's global. And 
I think the result of that is that as people heal themselves, as they develop their self-love, if the self-love is real, I think it slightly, slightly opens the door to unconditional love for all beings. It starts introducing you to that concept, introducing you to that way of living. If that self-love continues growing, then you're just going to be less and less interested in harming others, less interested in harming others directly, harming others indirectly. And I think as more people um, essentially heal themselves, relieve themselves of past trauma, they're going to be much more uh, focused on not only creating the environment, a peaceful environment within their own lives, but spreading that environment, letting that affect their institutions that, that they're a part of, the businesses that they create, the people that they vote for, what they even imagine is possible in the world. And I'm excited to see how this period will um, be affected by all of the healing that's happening. Because um, one last point is that I've, I really enjoy studying history. And one thing that I see over and over in history is that there are always groups of people who want to, um, you know, try to change the world for the better. They have these ideals that they want to push forward. And sometimes they're successful. Like I think one of the best examples is Robespierre from the French Revolution, you know, that had these great ideals and was part of this you know, group of people who wanted to, um, you know, just like just create democracy, create what was what would come after monarchy. And um, and they gained power. And what happened after that was this horrendous massacre, this, um, you know, tens of thousands of people over a few year period that were just massacred. And one thing I like to point out is that power, it functions like a magnet on the ego where it will pull out the roughest parts. So that means that a lot of these people, you know, that's one example, but it's happened over many times historically. When you do gain some degree of power, a lot of people who were once fighting for this great change, they end up recreating the thing that they were once fighting against. So we now have this opportunity in this modern time, this healing generation where, you know, it really includes anyone, anyone who's a child to however old you may be, um, we have access to these tools that can help us alleviate our egos, not have them be so dense, to have us um, build new relationships with our communities, with power itself, so that we don't become these ugly versions of ourselves. I'm curious how you'll respond to one of the critiques I hear a lot about people who are dedicated to healing, and I'm sure you know mm. where I'm going here, which is like, great, good for you, glad you're healing, glad your world is peaceful and you have the spa candle lit and stuff, but it's not really pouring out to create structural change. You're not addressing structural change. And you introduced this term structural compassion, mm -hmm. and that those of us who are committed to personal healing, that there is a way we can connect that dot and also invest ourselves in structural compassion. So I guess this is a two part question. The first, yeah. why do you think so many people seem and they do seem to get kind of stuck in the bubble bath of personal healing mm -hmm. and not make mm -hmm. the second step? And then what is required for us to make this combination uh, so that we're healing and we're changing the forms that we live in? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, one thing to understand is that people have really different capacities. Um, so that's something I've been learning over time is that um, there are some people who can, you know, they can see their therapist, they can work their job, they can also, you know, give their time to different causes, and they have this great capacity, they can do a lot of things. Then there are other people who have like, serious mental health issues, and all they can really do is like work on their mind, because that's just how much they can tolerate at that moment. And what I like to point out is that we do need to be able to sort of function with our capacity and and do our best to take our own healing seriously, because ultimately, even if all you can do is heal yourself, then to me, that means that the people who cross your path, they're going to be, um, there's a lesser chance of them being harmed. And I think that's really powerful. That multiplied by millions and millions of people creates a much more peaceful environment. And now in terms of um, actual structural change, I think like, you're, you know, like you're the perfect example, Tammy, like you've built this like huge thing that is providing this immense service. And not only do you like provide so many fantastic tools for people through Sounds True, but you also have a foundation attached to it that's making like literal change, like literal important changes. So I think there are, you know, it's 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 a powerful time that we live in where there are more people who are, you know, seeing their therapists, doing their meditations, doing the things that they need, but they're like designing their nonprofits or they're designing their for-profit ventures in a way where compassion is still involved in that, where they're designing their products compassionately. So I think... Um, I think it takes it takes years to be able to see these greater results. Like it's not going to ha happen next year. You know, it's going to take a few decades for us to see the greater results of where this giant healing generation is taking us. But um, I mean, I meet amazing people that do work like you all the time who are just building these incredible organizations that are for the common good. And I think that that gives me a lot of hope. Did you come up with this term, structural compassion? I never heard it before, before reading Lighter, or did you hear it that happened, from someone? It happened like a, accidentally while I was talking to Sharon Salzberg. We did a podcast a few years ago, and we were talking about her book, and um, and we were kind of just like going forward about structural harm, and the term kind of just like came up, and um, and we like I, I don't know if anybody has. It was a about no. It, it was a combustion <laughs> of you and you and Sharon and her work with real change. Tell mm -hmm. us what it means to you, because I mean, I think we hear so much about yeah. structural racism, structural yep. harm, the waters we're all swimming in, and the notion that we could be swimming in waters mm -hmm. of structural compassion mm -hmm. is, you know, it's kind of mind blowing. I want to hear your vision of that. I um, I like the term structural compassion because it points our imagination in a different direction. Like yes. we, know, we know we live in all these structures. Like we know about the patriarchy, we know about racism, we know about, you know, just um, the way that our economies are structured so that they exhaust the planet. Um, so when I was using the term structural compassion, like I know that I don't have all the answers. Like I know that the sort of the last three chapters of the book, they're not gonna tell you like step one, this is how you heal the world to like step Z, you know, like it's not gonna take you to the end of it. But I'm trying to sort of, create the conditions so that we can start thinking about what structural compassion means to us. Like if you're an artist or if you're like in banking or if, if you're, you know, in the tech world, like, what does that mean? Like, how can I support the creation of something that, that is actually compassionate and, 
I think um, to me, it means that you have the welfare of others in mind. You have like, you want to have your own welfare in mind and simultaneously that you're, you're trying not to harm others intentionally or unintentionally. And from that point, let's see how can we design our businesses? How can we design our governments? How can we give more people access to power so that they um, feel like they're the makers of their lives? Um, but I really sort of, I feel like I am pushing that term forward, but I'm trying to create the space so that we can all figure out together what it really means. You said some very kind words about the work of Sounds True, and I I think you're correct in that we're trying to build in structural compassion totally. to our organization, what we do. And, and I notice I have a lot of frustration. I have uh, frustration about the bigger world that our small organization is a part of mm -hmm. and a sense of frustration around that. You know, in your final chapter of Lighter is a new era. And, you know, you write, I believe building a structurally compassionate world is possible. We have to believe it before we can build it. And I think, you know, often, uh, to be honest with you, I think, yeah, I can, I can help create an organization like this, but the greater world, I just think, come on, really? A new era? Really? Is it going to, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I feel, I feel a little down. And so mm -hmm. Diego, uh, here, you're my friend. What, what do you have to say? <laughs> I think it's rightfully so. I like to, um, I like to look at the work of um, the, the the creator of um, the social dilemma. Uh, he's a friend, his name is slipping at the moment, but he did this amazing talk at Wisdom 2.0 where he was pointing out that the way the internet function, functions is that, especially if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook or Instagram or just the news cycle in general, the news that comes to the surface is normally the more the more sort of extreme news. It's like the most dramatic thing that happens, that gets the most clicks, the most negative situation that's out there, that's what comes to the surface. So it gives you a pretty skewed idea of what the world is actually like. So when I try to look at the world, I try to take a big step back as well, because obviously there are a lot of things that we need to address, but I'd rather be born now than have been born in 1969, you know, or have been born earlier than that. Like I think about, you know, a, a, someone who's really close to me who was just last year was talking about how he didn't want to have children because the world is so chaotic and dangerous and scary and um, so out of balance. And it left me thinking, like I thought about that for months after, you know, I was like, and I started asking myself and I was like, wait, I was like, what has been a good period? Like what has been a good period of time to actually have children? And I, you know, I was like 1940, like, no, that was a terrible time. Like 1920, you know, no, these are, these are not great times, especially for me as like a, you know, an indigenous man. Um, and you keep going back like 1850, like horrible time, you know? So when you look at the greater scope of the macro situation of what's happening there, the world is overall less dangerous than it was before, like child mortality rates, the amount of people that can read, um, all of these things have been moving in a positive direction where the world is slowly becoming a better place. And I think that this 
healing generation, it's not going to fix everything, but it's going to just keep pushing us forward over these long spans of time into a better direction where we are much more cognizant of the harm that we can cause each other. And we're not just going to like turn a blind eye to it. To end our conversation, Diego, I'm going to pull out my favorite quote from Leiter. Here it is. We don't just need each other. We are each other. And without each other, we cannot succeed. What do you mean we are each other? <clears throat> I think um, like humans, we can't, we can't exist in a vacuum. Like we, we are built to need community and to be able to like allow that love to move forward and outward and really inspire our actions. Um, I think it's just uh, bringing harmony into that community will, um, will just uplift us in such profound ways. So I think really realizing and just going back to what you were saying before, like it's true, a lot of people, you know, keep their healing to themselves, but we should be inspired to share um, not just what we've learned, but to share loving actions, to share our harmony and to like bring our harmony into the situations that we're a part of and do our best to, um, in a balanced way, you know, help ourselves, but also help others. I've been speaking with Diego Perez, who writes under the pen name, Young Pueblo. He's the author of the new book, Lighter, Let Go of the Past, Connect with the Present, Expand the Future. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after the show Q&A conversations with featured presenters and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.